The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Well, we're continuing on in John chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 11. We're going to be in verse uh, 17 and going through verse uh, 37 as we continue where Pastor Colin uh, left off last week. And if you remember last week, we talked about how Jesus was with his disciples and they received a message from uh, Mary and Martha that uh, Lazarus was ill. And they said to him, him who you love is ill. And Jesus responded and said, his sickness isn't unto death. And they interpreted that that he would get better, and so they didn't want to go because the Jews were threatening Jesus at that time in Judah. And uh, later on, he says, let us go. And so uh, the messenger would have returned and told Mary and Martha that the sickness is not unto death, but Lazarus, we know from the timing of all this, would have already been dead. And by the time Jesus shows up, uh, it's been four days. And Bethany... I want to point out, is about 20 miles from where he was staying, kind of near the Jericho-ish area along um, the Jordan River. And it would have taken him a little while to get there. Coming all the way to Bethany, Bethany is a town very close to uh, Jerusalem. It would have been on the other side of the Mount of Olives on kind of like the, the, um, the eastern-facing slope, southeastern-facing slope of the Mount of Olives. And it would have taken him a little while to get there. And that 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 location is very important because that location would have been where Jesus would eventually ascend to heaven. It is also the location spoken of in the prophet Zechariah 14, where Jesus would return and he would return to earth uh, there in his second coming. So the the location is important, but the location is is some distance. So uh, we're going to, now that we've seen the setting, we're going to start here reading in verse 17, and I'm going to read through um, verse 27. And then we'll look at this passage. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead, had been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is come, who is coming into the world. So as we look at this passage, we see that in verse 17, the timing of Jesus was a little bit late to perform any kind of healing ministry, any kind of healing uh, um, 
uh, miracle. And the decomposition by four days of Lazarus's body would have already been under uh, underway. So they've put him in the tomb and he's been there for four days. Traditionally in a Jewish funeral, once a person dies, they take him and put him right into the tomb. And then the family will have a, a sort of funeral procession to the tomb along with their friends and relatives in the surrounding area. And they would have eulogized that person right there at the tomb. And then they would have mourned for a full seven days with lots of mourning, lots of expressive crying. So by day four, this has already taken place. They've already come to start the grieving process. They've already accepted the fact that Lazarus is dead and gone. And all hope of Lazarus recovering, recovering from that sickness is now dead and gone as well and buried with him in the tomb. So they've been grieving. Jesus arrives and many of the Jews um, see this. And in verse uh, 20 through 22, Martha goes to Jesus while she is grieving. She hears that Jesus has come and she goes to him. And I think this is, this is significant because we see Mary stay in the house and Martha runs to Jesus. Whether or not Mary knows that Jesus is there yet, we don't know. But Martha hears that he's there and she just runs to Jesus. And they begin to have this dialogue. And Martha, who, was, who we think of as that person who is often so um, obsessed with serving and obsessed with doing and obsessed with all the wrong things because we know that from Mar that story of Mary and Martha, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha is, is worried and troubled with many things. Here it's Martha who is with Jesus. And she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it may seem like she's saying to him, Lord, where were you? We know that you have the power to heal sickness. And if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. But we know that she goes on to say something else that, 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 that kind of shows where her heart really is. But, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Even now, even though he's been in the grave for four days, even though decomposition has already started. Even now, whatever you ask, it's almost as if she's starting, she actually believes that if Jesus were to ask that he would rise from the dead, that he would. It's, it, we see later that that's not really where she is mentally. She's not really prepared to make that statement of faith, but we see a glimmer of faith, don't we? We see her at least giving lip service to his power. And sometimes that's how faith starts with us, with, with a growing faith. In verse 23, through 27, Jesus tells her that Lazarus will rise again. And it's not necessarily clear, uh, perhaps to Martha or even to us, what Jesus is actually saying. Is he saying that, that, that Lazarus, you know, comforting Martha and saying, you know, Lazarus will rise again on the last day. That's the way Ma uh, Martha takes it. And she says, I know that he will rise again on the last day at the resurrection of the dead. And then Jesus does something here. He starts to change the focus of the conversation. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. He takes her, her, her mind off of the circumstance, off of the tragedy, off of all the emotions that she's feeling and the questions she's asking Jesus. And he redirects her focus 
onto Jesus and who he is and says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this isn't this like Jesus. He takes our mind. So many times we see in the gospel when people are talking about what's going on here in the flesh and what's going on uh, in, in the physical with whether people are hungry or sick or tired or, or afraid, Jesus takes our focus from the things of this world and points it to the things of the next world. And he starts talking about his identity. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He wants her to stop and consider who he is. Is he a rabbi? Is he a teacher? Is he a miracle worker that was just a little bit too late? And it may seem to us that this timing is a little bit off to start talking about who Jesus is in the midst of tragedy. Aren't we supposed to like just be with people? Aren't we supposed to just listen when somebody's going through some really hard times? But Jesus knows what she needs to hear. She needs to have her mind focused off of the, strat- the, the tragedy onto what, who he is because he knows what he's about to do. And if her mind is not taken off the tragedy, she might miss the meaning of what's about to happen. She, the people uh, in this situation have to understand what the significance of what he is about to do is, otherwise they may miss it. They may again see just another miracle. But he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That is, life is found in me. All meaning of life, is, is, it's not found in what happens in our circumstance and our tragedy and then something good happens that makes up for the tragedy. That's not what this life is about. This life is about who Jesus is. And that's what this whole passage is about. He wants to redirect her focus. Let's read on in the passage. Verse 28. When she, had said, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, that is Mary, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who had opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So we see this, this story continues and, and, and um, Mary learns that Jesus is asking for her. And she gets up and she runs to Jesus. And the whole company follows her. We see this statement, the same statement that Martha um, spoke to Jesus a statement of faith. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. We know you have power with God. Mary makes the same exact statement, but the conversation seems to kind of stop right there because something happens. He sees Mary crying. 
And sometimes that kind of changes everything, right? When, when you, maybe you're having an argument or something with somebody and then that person just starts to cry. It kind of changes everything. You start to see their weakness. You start to see their pain. And, and you start to feel a little bit of, of something about what they're feeling. It changes the whole atmosphere. And then he also sees the great crowd crying. And this woman who had learned previously at his feet is now falling at his feet crying. And these mourners are coming and they're wailing. And it says he's deeply moved. The Greek, there, the Greek word there is embrimaomai, which means groaned or troubled. It can also mean angry or highly disturbed. Jesus is, is indignant with what he's seeing here. He's troubled. Tarasso in the Greek, disturbed, distressed. It's kind of like, has the idea of like boiling water. He's, 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 it's like the opposite of shalom, which is peace and well-being. He's, he's troubled deeply in his spirit, a gut-wrenching grief as he sees the effects of sin. The effects of sin and the fall of man is death and grieving and tragedy and bereavement. And this scene of people back in this, in this culture, when people grieved, they would all come together and they would just wail. All the friends, all the families, and sometimes they would even hire professional mourners who were particularly skilled in this to really create the atmosphere and really make it just a real, a real um, a, a, a demonstration of extreme grief. And Jesus responds to that not with some stoic resolution to, to providence or to fate. He doesn't respond with systematic theology and, 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 and simply stating more truths about who he is. He enters into that grief and he chooses, he chooses to enter into this and manifest his humanity in such amazing grief to the point where others, when they see him crying, you know, they're crying to a, to a degree that we perhaps can't even imagine in our culture. But when they see him crying, it's almost as if he's outdoing everyone. And they say, see how he loved him. And can we even picture that? Can you picture Christ weeping, perhaps even scream crying at the funeral of his friend? Imagine, imagine you, many of you have, have recently lost loved ones. Can you imagine Jesus at the funeral of your lost one, your loved one who, who, who's recently died? Can you imagine Jesus there in your entering into your grief in your, at, at the funeral of your loved one? Can you, can you picture him there? That's, that's Jesus's heart. That's who he is as the son of God entering into humanity. Verse 36, it gets a reaction. Was it a courtesy cry? Verse 37, the second reaction is to ponder a little bit of who he was. It says in verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So Jesus already has sort of a reputation. They kind of know a little bit about who he is. Um, some of them maybe know a lot and have followed him in his ministry. Some of them maybe are more on the periphery, but it's kind of in the same area as Jerusalem where he spent a lot of time. They, they've heard about the healing of the blind man, which was in that geographical area in chapter 9. And so they are also kind of thinking, um, this man 
if he would have been there, this tragedy wouldn't have occurred. There's a subtext there, which is, where was he? Four days. They, we, we know when they sent the messenger, perhaps. Where was he? This is Jesus of Nazareth, but he also has a ministry down here. He knows Mary and Martha. Why wasn't he there for his own, his own friends? There's another uh, kind of subtext to this question. Um, it's too late now. Could this man, who would have opened the eyes of the blind, also kept this man from dying? Oh, well. It's an understandable reaction because even though Jesus had previously raised the dead, the little girl, the, the widow's uh, son uh, in the funeral procession, you know, you may see those instances where the body um, was still warm, right? They had just passed away. But this man, he's been in the tomb for four days. The funeral has already been completed in a sense. The mourning now is going on for seven days and we're on day four. And then on top of all of that, when he finally arrives, he weeps. And not just weeping, he is weeping from the depths of his spirit. That's not a real encouragement, is it? Imagine if you went to a doctor and he just started weeping. Is that a good sign? Here we have the great physician and he's weeping. The, the, the most logical conclusion is, well, he's coming to grips with Yes, the realities of sin and death, but he's also coming to grips with the passing of his friend. He's coming to grips, perhaps in regret that he wasn't there sooner. He's coming to grips with this. And now Jesus is going to have to accept this. Jesus is going to have to accept this loss. Makes perfect sense that they would, they would start to conclude this. That's where the passage ends of the verses that I'm supposed to cover. So you're just going to have to come back next week and see what happens. That's the way we divided this up. Julie was like, you can't stop there. Obviously, I have a lot of applications, so sermon's not over. But uh, that's, that's how we divided this up. And there's a lot here. I've got five points of application, so let's jump right into it. God's timing, number one, God's timing isn't our timing. When God, when God divides out how he's going to work things in his divine providence, he doesn't, he doesn't structure his timing with your comfort zone in mind. He's creating his perfect timing with the revealing of himself to you, with the revealing of himself to your heart. That's what he has in mind. He has the gift of himself to you. And sometimes we're never really going to understand who Christ really is until things get dark, right? I'm reading through my devotions right now in um, Exodus, and I just got to the point where the, um, the Israelites come to the Red Sea, and they are led there purposely by God to the Red Sea on one side, the wilderness, and Pharaoh's coming armies. But they're never going to realize how powerful Jesus is until they are in that situation, trapped. Sometimes you, you can never really appreciate freedom until you're in bondage, until you're trapped, until things get dark. You, you, there can never be a resurrection until there's death. And Jesus wants to teach us today and teach them in their day that he is the resurrection that, that can't be demonstrated with such a tangible expression until there's a death. So if you're trapped today in your circumstances, 
Be encouraged. I'm not telling you to be happy because that, that, that's, that's not appropriate. I'm telling you to be encouraged because that's exactly where God wants you so that he can reveal who he is to you. Number two, run to Jesus. Notice that Martha did exactly the right thing. When she heard that Jesus was on his way, she didn't just wait for him to come to her. She went to him. We need to run to Jesus. That should be our posture. When it seems like God is just too late, it's all done. It's over. There's no point in praying anymore. Run to Jesus. It's never too late. We like to run to all sorts of other comforts, other so all kinds of other functional saviors and, and comforts and things that t take our minds off our situation and our circumstances. But we need to run to the one source that gives us hope. And it's in who he is, not just his power to change our circumstance, but who he is as the resurrection and the life. Number three, who is Jesus to you? Notice that Jesus is not afraid to go right past the tragedy to right, right to what is important. He's not afraid to speak into somebody's life when it seems like the worst possible time that he could start bringing up theology. Who is Jesus to you? You may be in the darkest place right now in your life, the absolute bottom, the darkest place that you could possibly imagine. Or maybe you think you are, but you're not there yet, and things are about to get worse. And probably a lot of people in this room where you're in a bad situation, but things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. Just like when Lazarus was sick and he was about to die, it was like, wow, this is testing our faith. Let's send a message to Jesus. He'll get here and it's going to test our faith. No, it was going to get worse. He was going to die. And then Jesus was going to come. Actually, no, they were going to bury him. And then it was going to get worse. They were going to wait another three days, four days total of waiting and grieving and accepting that it's inevitable. He's gone. Let him go. There are some of us here who it's only going to get worse before it gets better. But who is Jesus to you? That's the real question. Before you go into this horrible situation or circumstance, who is Jesus to you? Because you're going to have to have your mind focused on that unless you miss it. You miss what God is really trying to teach you. Martha said, I believe you are the Christ. In those dark circumstances, that that's what she says. Is that what you believe? Is that your heart cry? If it isn't, run to him. Just run to him. And say, Lord, I, I've never truly believed. I've never truly had faith. I've had an intellectual understanding. But this stuff about the heart, it's just beyond me. It doesn't really, it doesn't really touch me there. And I'm being crushed by this. Number four, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Absolutely, totally. He didn't lose control of his emotions. He chose to step into a grief that was such an amazing, overwhelming grief. I'm not, I'm not really a crier that much temperamentally. You know, that, that emotional expression makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, temperamentally. That's just who I am. Emotion, uh, emotions are not, are not necessarily 
they're not bad, but they're expressions of who we are as image bearers, bearers of God. He's, he's given us emotions and he's given us human emotions. And when Jesus stepped into humanity, he stepped into those emotions that involved the possibility of this kind of thing happening, of, of experiencing grief and bereavement. That's not something that God, you know, in his glory in heaven, he knows about it because he knows everything, but now he's experiencing it. Now he's stepping into it and knowing it in an intimate way because he's, he's stepped into the incarnation and become like one of us. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? That God decided to become weak like us. He steps in to the very things and the very darkest things that we experience. Do you think that Jesus does not see you in your grief? Because there's a, there's a possibility of that deception. God doesn't know what I'm going through because he's not doing anything. But God sees you and he enters into it. In Hebrews 4.15, it says that Christ is a high priest. He is not a high priest that cannot be touched with our infirmity. He is a high priest that's in heaven who knows who we are as human beings and as flesh and blood. I think it's interesting that we don't really see Jesus crying in other portions of scripture. This is a very unique thing. You know, he didn't, he didn't cry when he knew that, that Peter was going to betray him and stab him in the back. He didn't cry in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't cry when he was betrayed. He didn't weep when he was condemned to death. He didn't cry when he was getting his nails pierced in his hands and feet. But he cries at Mary crying. When Mary comes and falls at his feet, that's when Christ is cut to the heart and, and weeps like he's never wept before. Did you know that it says in Psalms 56, 8, he puts all of our tears in a bottle. He saves those moments. He knows those moments. He doesn't forget those moments, even when we do. Point number five, this is all part of God's plan. He weeps with us and he feels our pain, but why doesn't he do anything? Why isn't he doing anything? And this was, the, this was, again, this is the subtext of all the questioning, right? Could this man have helped us? You know, it's kind of like this underlining, like, well, where was he? Why didn't he do anything? Why isn't he doing anything now? He's just crying. You know, it's kind of confusing sometimes when, when things happen that seem to go against the promises of God, and they seem to go against the word of God. It may, it may go against what um, God seems to have been speaking to you in your spirit and what you've been re reading in the Bible. It all seems to not really work. And it's, it, it, it's, it's challenging your faith. And everybody was thinking this. You have to understand that these trials, these, these temptations, and these, these deep waters that we go through are so much bigger than just you. It's so much bigger. We know from the, from the scripture that when this occurred, when Jesus came down, and when he when he walked into the situation and he raises Lazarus, it sets in motion a sequence of events that would eventually lead to his crucifixion and his resurrection. 
It says this in John 11, uh, 47 through 48. I don't want to preach next week's sermon, but I can't help but point this out because it's such an obvious application here. In 47, so the chief priests and Pharisees gathered in, in the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that they should let him know so that they might arrest him. Now they had made attempts on his life before, but it didn't happen because his time had not come. Because when Jesus came, he had to fulfill all prophecy. And the prophecy was a prophecy in motion. That is the Passover. He had to die on the Passover because the Passover celebration, that feast was actually an embodiment of what Jesus would do in his atonement. He died on the very feast day that was a prophecy of who he was. The Passover lamb was killed and they took the blood from that from that. Um, that lamb, and they, they put it on the doorposts on either side and above so that the angel of death would pass over, symbolizing our atonement that Christ's blood covers us from the penalty of sin and death. Jesus had to die in Jerusalem. He had to die on the Passover. He had to, he had to rise again on the Feast of Firstfruits, which was the very embodiment of, of, of the prophecy of his resurrection. All these things had to happen perfectly to fulfill all things. And it was set in motion by this tragedy of Lazarus dying. Jesus waiting all that time, showing up four days late and then, and then performing this miracle. Uh, we can look at um, more things that this set up. John 12, 12 through 18, the next day. This is the triumphal entry. It sets up the triumphal entry as well. The next day, the large crowd came to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're proclaiming his messiahship. And Jesus found a young donkey, donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him from Jerusalem was that they heard that he had done this sign. The sign was in fulfillment of an ancient prophecy, centuries old, in Zechariah 9 Verse 9, if he, if he hadn't have raised Lazarus from the dead the way he did, then they wouldn't have been bearing witness. They wouldn't have been crying out Hosanna. They wouldn't have come out of the city and, and to hear what Jesus has done and, and, and by extension who he is. And, and, this, and this prophecy would have been done kind of alone. It kind of been like Jesus coming into Jerusalem with crickets right, on a colt, and he's fulfilling this glorious prophecy. No, it had to be Jerusalem coming out. Jerusalem, the people of God, crying out Hosanna, showing who he is. This is so much bigger than just Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. This thing has, has global, universal, eternal, multidimensional aspects. This goes into the spirit world, into who Jesus is as, as the Godhead coming to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, in the form of a man and fulfilling ancient prophecy. 
What are you going through right now? Have you experienced a death in the family, a death of your marriage, a death of your, your testimony, the death of your career, the death of your life? It just seems like your life is just falling apart. That's bigger than you, way bigger. Everything that happens to you touches everyone else. The way people see you going through trials, temptations, and, and bereavements, and tragedy is going to touch everyone around. They're going to see you. And if God does a miracle, they're going to see that. And it's going to touch everyone. And when you realize who Christ is, that's the miracle. That's the real miracle. And if you believe who he is, don't be surprised if he turns your entire circumstances all around and everything works out. But, but in the midst of that, there'll be a testimony to your heart that, that's all, that that wasn't even the big thing. Right? When he does the resurrection and he does the miracle and he turns everything around, what really got to you was who Jesus was. And then that is what is truly meant. That's, that's the whole point. If we miss that, we miss the whole point of the passage. It's who Jesus is. He is the resurrection and the life. He is seeking those that are willing to believe in him. As the worship team comes up, I want to conclude. Trust, trust God. All of these things have been written for our benefit. All of these, th- all the, the stories of the miracles and all, all of these things. You can trust God. You can trust Christ. There are times where you're going to be over, so overcome with tragedy that you may not even be able to pray, but trust him. And trust your soul to him. Give your life to him. Follow him. I want to leave you with this last verse. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore let those who suffer according to, the, to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You can do that through him, through his love. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.